If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In order to understand modern Russia, you need to understand its history. That's the opinion of historian Orlando Figes, whose new book, The Story of Russia, re-examines the myths that have shaped the nation's view of its past. From fierce debates around the country's foundation story to Vladimir Putin's recent historical justifications for the invasion of Ukraine. He told me more about how modern Russia reflects on and weaponizes its national history. You say in the introduction to your new book that contemporary Russian politics are too often analysed without a knowledge of the country's past. And in the story of Russia, you guide us through that national past. In light of what's happening at the moment in Russia and in Ukraine, this, of course, it feels incredibly timely. So I'm interested to know when you started writing the book, did recent developments shape your perspective at all when you were writing? Mm, That's a good question. I mean, I probably should preface uh, my remarks by saying that it's not just a thousand years of history that we need to know, hopefully delivered um, in in my book, but it's also the historical memory of the Russians we need to understand. So that's why I called the book The Story of Russia, because it's, it's as much about the ideas and ideologies, the mythologies that have been woven into Russia's past by Russia's rulers and ideologists as it is about the you know the events the the social forces the institutions the characters that have made that history when i started working on this book 
It was with the sense that for some time there had been this growing disconnect, really, between the way we understand Russian history, the way I've taught it for 35 years and thought about Russia for most of my career, that there was a growing disconnect between that and the way the Russians see their own history, the way they've been taught to see it through schools and the museums, films, programs, books, novels, and all the rest of it that have shaped this historical memory. And that's that's very different from our, from our own understanding, particularly in those areas of Russian history which in, interface with our own, so the Cold War or World War II in particular. And um, my sense was that it was very important to, uh, to get across, not to justify in any way, but simply to show the, this disconnect and, and to illuminate the ideas and values that have been attached to certain episodes in Russian history and to illuminate the ideas driving Russian history. Because although, like everyone else, I was taken aback by the full-scale invasion, I, I had been increasingly aware in previous years of, of, of growing tensions, of growing sense of resentment towards the West coming from the Putin regime. I had this growing sense talking to, to Russian friends and engaging with Russians in Russia over historical issues that that they just saw things in a very different way from the way that I would see them or most of my colleagues would. So that was the idea of the book, that that, uh, that we needed to, to understand where the, the Russians were coming from um, in order to be able to know how to deal with them, I suppose. And the book was finished in November 21, before the uh, war uh, began uh, in, in its present guise. Um, but already with, you know, this growing standoff, ideological, geopolitical between Russia and the West over Ukraine. Um, so I had decided to open the book with this sort of set piece prologue about the opening of the statue of the Grand Prince Vladimir in Moscow outside the Kremlin, um, a figure from uh, the, the, t- the 10th century who, who was in Putin's version of history, the founder not just of Kiev and Rus, as we would now call it, but the founder of modern Russia, uh, therefore the founder of the Soviet Union, effectively, and, and the Russian Federation as the successor to, to the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire. And that ran completely at loggerheads with with the Ukrainian version of Grand Prince Vladimir, who was the founder of Ukraine as a European state, as Pyotr Poroshenko, then the president of Ukraine, claimed when he was really quite angry about this appropriation of Grand Prince Vladimir, to whom there had been a statue put up um, in 1853 when Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire. But that statue had since become, for Ukrainians, especially since 1991, a sort of symbol of Ukrainian independence. And here were the Russians appropriating it, stealing their history and claiming not just uh, the primary right of descendants from from Kiev, uh, but also to be the, the sort of imperial power uh, with, with a right of um, influence over Ukraine, if not um, complete domination of it. That question of historical memory is a really interesting one that I do want to return to. But you mentioned there this idea of certain key themes that made you perhaps less surprised about events as they unfolded as than other people might have been. You say in the book that Russia's history is dominated by big structural continuities. What are some of those threads that we can trace 
throughout Russian history. Um, yes, what Putin says in, I think, his first uh, proper historical essay of any sort, um, the Millennial Manifesto, as it's called, published in 1999 on his ascendancy to the presidency, in which he argued that effectively, although the Russians valued the universal Western principles they had gained as a result of the collapse of the Soviet Union, so freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and so on, they nonetheless saw no contradiction between those principles and the need for a strong state. And he argued that uh, throughout Russian history, uh, one could say that, that Russia was strongest when it was united behind a strong leader, a strong state. Um, and weakest when it was divided, usually because of the activities of Western-oriented liberals. Um, uh, so he would put in that category uh, uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, influenced by the West, who brought about the collapse of the Soviet Union. He would put in that category um, the, the, the liberals who assumed power in February 1917 on the collapse of the Russian monarchy. So um, that's clearly from the start of his regime, his vision of the need for a strong state. But it develops, uh, particularly in his third term as president uh, from 2012, um, when he adopts this idea of the Russian world, which is really the historical justification for this war in Putin's vision. Assume that Russia was some sort of empire or civilizational sphere uh, whose religion, language, not just united it with its other Slav brothers, particularly the Ukrainians or little Russians in this imperial discourse and the Belarusians or white Russians in this imperial discourse, but gave Russia indeed um, the right to dominate them because it was the holder of statehood in this empire. And that's why Putin... Uh, in this imperial vision, constantly stresses not just that Ukraine is not a nation, does not contain within itself the basis of any statehood, but that it can only exist as part of greater Russia. Um, that uh, as, as soon as it begins to turn away from big brother Russia uh, and assert its independence, it falls into the hands of uh, foreign powers who have wanted to turn Ukraine against Russia. So in um, a very important 5,000-word uh, essay on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, which the Kremlin published in 2021, Putin develops this idea by saying, you know, um, one can think of Poland and Lithuania in the 17th century, the Austrians in the 19th century, the Germans in the First World War, the Allied powers in the Russian Civil War, the Nazis in the, in the Second World War. They have all tried to turn Ukraine against Russia as an anti-Russia, to undermine and dismantle Russia. And the American Americans after 2014 have been doing exactly the same. So a strong leader is needed to, 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 to defend these borderlands, which is, I suppose, how Putin sees Ukraine. And that is um, originally how Ukraine was cast in the imperial ideology of the Russian Empire as um, simply a borderland, Ukraine, a meaning borderland in, in Russian. Uh, and then um, that obviously builds onto a number of other historical mythologies that are 
are longer rooted in, in Russian history. So they would go back to 19th century imperial historiography, um, the idea of, of Russia as an imperial entity, um, the, the idea of, of, the, of the, the Tsar being effectively, or the ruler being effectively, um, not just a sacred figure in the Byzantine sense, so the representative of God on earth, but also more than that, a human god whose cult venerates his power as something sacralized. That's a very strong tradition in Russia. Then the other element of, of, of this mythology which has come into play uh, um, throughout Russian history, I think would be the idea of Russia, a uh, uh, Russian autocracy is patrimonial in nature. So in other words, the Tsar doesn't just rule over a state. He is the literal owner of Russia. Indeed, uh, Nicholas II, the last Tsar in the national census, the first Russian census of 1897, registered himself as literally Khazyayin, the owner of Russia. And so um, that carries on in a way that um, I think still feeds through into, say, the relationship now between Putin and his oligarchs. Uh, because it's a similar relationship to the Tsar and his boyars, or um, indeed to the Mongol Khan and his servitors, that they carry out uh, the will of, of the ruler but, and, and are rewarded by property and privilege um, in exchange for their service. But, but they only hold that property on the sufferance of the Tsar. As soon as they cross him or displease him, they, they can have it taken away. And so, and so Putin, you know, controls his uh, equivalent of the boys in the oligarchs. They're not just wealthy, corrupt businessmen. They are, they are doing Putin's bidding. They are effectively owned by him and can be called on by him to deliver money to this cause or to that bank account in Switzerland. So um, that's, um, you see, that's important to understand that patrimonial element because it makes the Putinite system um, not quite corrupt in the way that Western analysts often define Russian corruption. It's, it's not that Putin... Isn't I mean, people say, you know, Putin is worth 30 billion or whatever. And these sort of estimates of his wealth are really quite meaningless because Putin could make himself the richest man in the world if he wanted to. But he doesn't see it that way. He sees this ridiculous palace that Navalny illuminated in his anti-corruption video a few years ago. Um, you know, this hideous place that he's built at vast expense. Um, uh, this isn't his own own palace, but it's his insofar as he is equated with Russia and can use whatever Russian resources he likes, just like the patrimonial ruler of medieval times. So the sacralization of power, this patrimonial nature of power, these are, are just two of the, of the many sort of ideas and indeed institutions of Russian history I've tried to trace through the book, and they're, they're still very much alive today. And this emphasis on continuity here, the the importance of a strong leader, for example, is really interesting, I think, because at a glance, if you just looked at Russian history very quickly, what really stands out is the dramatic changes, the revolutions, the ideological swings. How does the Soviet era fit into this story of continuity then? I mean, it, it, there are these deep structural continuities, so autocracy constantly seems to be able to reassert itself in Russia whenever the state collapses or there's a revolution. But I wouldn't want to say that that makes the Russians by nature sort of 
um, obedient or needing a Tsar. It's not in their DNA. I mean, Russian history is littered with revolutions and popular protests. And indeed, I mean, Hannah Arendt in her classic Origins of Totalitarianism uh, characterized Soviet Russia by saying, you know, that it was a, re- a very rebellious place to try and control compared with, with Nazi Germany. So how does the Soviet um, uh, experiment, if we can call it that, fit into this? It, well, it does so quite easily in the sense that um, once the Civil War is over, the Soviet Union is formed. Um, uh, effectively, the Soviet system develops into something a little bit like the Russian Empire. I mean, it's different from it in the sense that under Lenin, um, when the Soviet Union was set up, a right of secession was given to the autonomous republics. Uh, something Putin believes was a huge mistake. I mean, he would have much preferred Stalin's solution to the nationalities question in 1922 by simply incorporating the autonomous regions of Russia, the Soviet republics, into Russia itself. So, in other words, the Soviet Union is similar to the Russian Empire in the sense that it's a federal structure, okay, not an empire, but it's dominated by by Russia by virtue of the fact, if only, that the party, the central directing force of the Soviet Union, is centered in Moscow. Uh, The Russian Communist Party doesn't exist. It doesn't need one because it has the Soviet Communist Party or the All-Union Communist Party. And that takes primacy over all the other parties and it's highly centralized system, the Soviet Union. So effectively, it, it's, it does fit into the pattern, albeit in a, in a, in a slightly different way, in a, in a Soviet form, which is uh, looser in terms of cultural rights, uh, uh, linguistic rights, um, particularly in the 1920s when the creation of local elites uh, was very much dependent on encouraging schooling in the indigenous language, so Ukrainian or or uh, Turkic languages. Um, and it still allowed for a, a good deal in the 1920s, a good deal of decentralization as well. But under Stalin, I guess, uh, from the 1930s, uh, it does re turn to a more imperial form of governance. And by the 1940s, Stalin is clearly, I mean, he he rarely refers to the Soviet Union, according to Mila Vangelis in his conversations with Stalin in the late 1940s. He talks about Russia. Russia becomes effectively the synonym of, of the Soviet Union. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The state has been clamping down on forms of uh, historical research, writing, presentation that would build an independent collective memory, historical memory. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match. With Indeed, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? 
You need Indeed. I wonder if I could rewind us a little bit now, because something that you talk about in your book is the origin story of Russia, or I perhaps should say origin stories, because there's many competing origin stories, which reflects, I think, you know, how this story of Russia is so politicized. I wonder if you could tell us about some of those origin stories. Yes, well, I started the book with this origin story, uh, the foundation myths around Grand Prince Vladimir of Kiev, who was the ruler who in 988 um, had himself baptized um, and therefore converted the Russians to Orthodox Christianity in the Crimea, which is one of the reasons why Crimea is such a sacred place in the Russian historical memory. So in the story of Russia, as it's been told over the last two or three hundred years since Russian history writing developed in the 18th century, the question of well, where do the Russians come from has been incredibly uh, contentious. So the first historians of Russia were on the whole Germans. Uh, uh, Müller, who is uh, the, the historian I focus on in my prologue, gave a lecture for the, the, the name day of Empress Anna, which was then censored and Müller hounded out of the historical profession because he had argued in, in his lecture that uh, the Russians really had received their statehood from the Vikings, who had uh, explored the northern coast and then the river network of um, ancient Rus and established a state at Kiev in uh, Müller's conception. But uh, four Russian nationalists who were already um, around and active in the mid-18th century, uh, Lomonosov being the leader of the pack, this sort of um, Renaissance man of the Russian Enlightenment who um, also wrote history books, he leads an attack on Müller for arguing that the Russians were incapable of making their own state. And uh, from that point, there are two diverging stories. Did Russia receive its statehood, its nationhood from foreigners, or did it make itself as a nation, as a Slav civilization? indigenously, organically. And in the 19th century, as the force of Slavophilism developed, accentuating Russia's indigenous talent, its historic destiny, independent from the West, uh, that nationalist story became dominant, so much so that by the Stalin period, it uh, was pretty dangerous to continue with the old argument that Russia was really the product of the Scandinavians. Um, and you can see that to argue that, particularly when Russia was at war with Sweden, as it was in the 1740s when uh, the uh, theory was first developed by Müller, or indeed to argue that later uh, when the Russians were at war with the Germans, I mean, it was a very dangerous thing to argue. So that has remained essentially the story of Russia uh, to this day. And Putin is very much in that tradition. But uh, his version of the origins of, of Rus, um, that it uh, is, a, is, a, is a state whose successor would be the Russian Empire, the modern Russian state, 
and therefore by extension uh, the Russian Federation of today. His argument is is diametrically opposed to the uh, competing myth or foundation myth, really, of, of the Ukrainians who like to see their Europeanness as rooted in ancient history and who would argue that Grand Prince Vladimir's conversion to Christianity in 988 brought Ukraine into the European world via Byzantium. Well, I mean, I think both theories are, are, are frankly as ridiculous as each other because it's nonsense to, to claim that the modern Russian state is, is a legacy of, of Rus any more than you could say that, you know, Alfred the Great is the founder of modern Britain. I mean, it's a, it's a distant echo in a sort of almost prehistoric past insofar as we don't have many written documents from that period. And even more so, arguably on the Ukrainian side. I mean, there's no record of Ukraine as a term being used in any documents until the 1180s. So that's 200 years after Grand Prince Vladimir supposedly established Ukraine. But these foundation myths, you know, the interest of them, the the force that they carry is not in the past, not as a historical explainer of um, anything that we can trace reliably as historians. The The force of these ideas ideas is as a mobilizing, unifying factor in the present, clearly. And both these um, foundation myths, uh, particularly the the Ukrainian foundation myth, is is absolutely essential to the Ukrainian cause in this war. So is that why these historical myths are so significant, so potent in Russia today? Because they can be weaponized or utilized to, to work for current political aims? Or are they culturally significant as well? Well, they're both, really. They are culturally significant insofar as these historical myths are locked into a whole cultural infrastructure of books, paintings, music, um, chronicles, religious ideas that, that go way back into Russian history and which give the Russians a sense of their own cultural identity. But I think they're more important, particularly at the moment, in terms of their propaganda purposes and the way that the Russians and indeed the Ukrainians tend to think about themselves. And uh, what's interesting about them uh, in a way that links both those parts of your question, if you like, is that these stories have an effect um, they they are believed. They they form part of the Russian belief system, insofar as they reflect some very basic storylines of Russian history that most Russians believe to be true. So, if we take Ukraine for example, I mean, I mentioned before in our conversation this idea that Putin develops that that Ukraine has always been used by the West as an anti-Russia that. It's, it's nationalism, um, its desire to be independent of the great Russians is, is, is always a moment when they fall into the hands of Russia's enemies. Well, that, that story works to some extent for the Russians because their historiography and the films and books they've always had telling the story of invaders uh, repeats that. It's, we are attacked. Uh, we rally around a great leader and we repulse the invader. So it's the story of Alexander Nevsky. 
who uh, the prince of Novgorod, who um, repelled the Teutonic Knights of uh, the papal forces to defend orthodoxy. For um, It's not coincidental that in a poll about 10 years ago, uh, Alexander Nevsky, this mythic figure whom we know very little about, actually came top as the most important Russian ever. It's the story equally of Alexander I. You know, Napoleon invades Russia. Alexander I rallies the Russians and repels them. It's the story of the Second World War and the Nazis being repelled under Stalin's leadership. So this is a sort of basic format of uh, of story about where Russia sits in the world. Uh, the the propaganda uh, that Putin can develop now, it, you know, it sits with it very comfortably. You spoke towards the beginning of the conversation about this disparity between the way that certain moments in history are remembered in Western Europe and in Russia. What are some of those most striking examples of that? Well, the most obvious example would be World War II, as we call it, although the Russians call it the Great uh, Patriotic War, which is an echo of the 1812 war, the Patriotic War, and which again fits into this narrative of we are attacked, we repel the invader. And that, of course, is very different from any Western view of the war, which you know begins in 1939 when, let's face it, the Soviets were on the Nazi side because of Hitler's pact with Stalin. But that's not how the Soviet uh, saw the war, and it's certainly not how the Russians now are building on that see it, because they would start the war in 1941 when they're attacked. They're silent over the 1939-41 to 41 period, and indeed, most Russians, as far as we can tell from polls, support Putin's idea on the, basically, the Soviet idea of of the Hitler-Stalin pact, that it was necessary in order to enable the Soviet Union to buy time and rearm and join the war on the Allies' side. Well, you know, that's um, nothing like the the truth, is it? Because we know that the Hitler-Stalin pact enabled the Nazis to invade Poland, and that was the beginning of the war. So, the other element of the war narrative, which is very different in the Russian telling and understanding from the way we would see the war, is this sense that the Russians have that they never really receive full recognition or acknowledgement for their supreme effort in, in the war. And that, again, fits into a, a long narrative tradition in the historical memory of Russians. So, equally, the Russians feel that they didn't get the recognition, the thanks from Europe they deserved when they defeated Napoleon. Likewise, Putin often goes on about the Battle of Kulikova of 1380, which was the first time Muscovy defeated the Mongol armies. And Putin argues that effectively what Russia was doing was acting as a shield for Europe. They had absorbed the Mongols and then pushed them back into Asia. And Europe had never said thank you for this. And and that goes way back into the Russian historical consciousness. And this sense that the Russians have not received the thanks that they're due for their efforts in the Second World War in particular remain a very potent element in this anti-Western nationalism that that Putin is stir- has been stirring up for, uh, for the last 20 years. 
And it's, I think it does, it does touch something very sensitive in, in the Russian psyche. Putin, I think, spoke for many Russians when he berated the Western leaders for their failure to turn up to the 60th anniversary of the 1945 victory on the 9th of May uh, 2015. They hadn't turned up because of the invasion of Crimea, quite rightly, but this nonetheless had, had, I think, affected Putin personally. It was perhaps the moment when he really sort of felt, right, okay, the West is now our enemy, because... um, you know, the, the sacrifice of how many millions it was, we'll never really know in, in that war. It's still felt by, by many Russians today whose grandparents fought in the war, um, who, who, whose families have been affected by the war in one way or another. And, and that sacrifice, they, they still feel, and it's still a potent force which Putin is able to use. And in this narrative of heroism and sacrifice. Is there any space allowed for failure on the Russian part? There's the very interesting story of the Crimean War. And um, for Putin, the example of Nicholas I, who led Russia into the Crimean War, is inspiring, despite the fact that Russia was heavily defeated and humiliated. And so there's a sort of moral victory for Russian nationalists to be pulled out of the Crimean War, namely that although we were defeated, we stood for our moral spiritual principles, which are superior to those of the materialist West, because we went to war against the whole of the West under the leadership of Nicholas to defend the Orthodox abroad. And that is a very interesting strand, again, of mythology that links the Crimean War with the present war in Ukraine, because Nicholas I had been encouraged by the Slavophiles to intervene in the Ottoman Empire to defend the Orthodox, the Balkan Slavs, and promote the interests of the Orthodox, particularly in the holy places, which at that time were under Ottoman rule. And that's effectively why Nicholas I had taken Russia into the Crimean War. Firstly, by bullying Turkey into giving Russia what it wanted by occupying uh, Moldavia and Wallachia on the Danube Delta, effectively Romania today, then under the Ottomans. And then uh, unexpectedly for uh, Nicholas, the Western powers intervened and attacked Russia in the Crimea. And he continued and fought and was defeated. But uh, although denounced by most Western-oriented liberals in Russia. Um, He was praised by Russian nationalists. And Putin, I think, uh, would share that praise and has encouraged this story of the Crimean War, moral victory from defeat. And indeed, I would say that there's a direct parallel between Nicholas's intervention in the Ottoman Empire on behalf of the Orthodox and Putin's own intervention in Ukraine Belarus, even in Kazakhstan, in this Russian world, as he claims, on behalf of Russian speakers. You know, that's a conception of Russia as bigger than its territorial boundaries. It's a conception of Russia as this spiritual civilization we were talking about, in which Moscow, as the leader of this empire, has not just a responsibility, but a a mission, a divine mission almost, to to represent the Russians stranded outside Russia by the collapse of the Soviet Union.
Finally, I just wanted to ask you what you could tell us about Russia's recent attempts to control the historical narrative and what that tells us about Russia's current relationship with its past. Yes, great question. And it's a very complicated area. As you say, um, the state has been clamping down on forms of uh, historical research, writing, presentation that would build an independent collective memory, historical memory. Um, I have worked uh, for many years with the memorial organization, which was founded in the late 1980s to represent victims of oppression and their families and to collect testimonies from those who lived through the Stalin era as victims. And they were closed down um, last autumn um, after many years of harassment by the by the by the Putin regime, and it's only one of many initiatives that have been taken by by Putin to control history, to control the past, to enforce the uh, teaching of uh, his narrative of the of the official nationalist narrative of Russia's history, um, in order to encourage um, a, a sort of imperial consciousness in the Russians, that they are, they really are the leaders of, a, of an empire, that they really are superior to the Ukrainians, I suppose. And that has that has translated itself into some of the Russian behaviours in this war. I mean, some of the atrocities, I think, are, are really Russian soldiers punishing the Ukrainians for daring to break away from the empire. So there's been a concerted effort over the last 10, 15 years a real ideological struggle to control the narrative of the past, which has become, if you like, weaponized or is part of the weaponry employed by the Putin regime in this war. Because it's only by controlling that narrative, it's only by disseminating the idea that Ukraine really is part of us, um, that uh, the regime is able to sustain popular support for the war, or at least to get away with a situation where most Russians simply go along with this narrative and say, well, he's just doing what needs to be done because Ukraine is part of Russia. And to many Russians, that you know isn't necessarily an ideologically driven idea. It's for many Russians, seems natural if they've grown up in a Soviet context uh, where these national divisions didn't count for very much, or for families where, you know, they do have Ukrainian relatives. So although they are, you know, behind a propaganda wall in Russia, um, although they don't have access necessarily to to the truth of what's going on, or to books like mine that can give them an alternative narrative, they can still relate to this propaganda version of their history because they've lived side by side with Ukrainians, married to Ukrainians, and therefore don't see it as a separate country, perhaps. That was Orlando Figes, whose book, The Story of Russia, is out now, published by Bloomsbury. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt.